Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hey, cuz, welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is. And today we're going to find out what happens when you fight the law. Let's go, Jenna! How good it is! Hi there, I'm Claude Call, and I am proud to be amongst you. And the trivia question I have for ye today goes back to something I said a couple of episodes ago. So, if you were paying attention, you might already know the answer. I noted that Windy by The Association was only one of two songs from the rock era that made it to the top of the Billboard chart that made use of the instrument that most people associate with elementary school music class, the recorder. What was the other song? I'll have that answer for you later in the show. Most people of a certain age remember I Fought the Law as a song made popular by the Bobby Fuller Four. Others a bit younger will recall the version by The Clash a few years later, and we're going to talk about those. But first we have to talk about this. What, you ask, does this have to do with I Fought the Law? Well, believe it or not, it's related to this. It Doesn't Matter Anymore was the last single released by Buddy Holly and the Crickets before his death in February of 1959. Now, it's kind of complex, but Holly left the Crickets in 1958 to work in New York. Drummer Jerry Allison and bass player Joe Malden planned on reuniting with him after his tour of the Midwest, but they were also working as their own band. So they began writing and laying down some new tracks with a new guitarist, Sonny Curtis, who was a friend and frequent collaborator with Holly, and they were employing Earl Sinks as their vocalist because he had a similar style to Holly. Well, we all know how the Midwest tour ended. Buddy Holly was killed in a plane crash along with the Big Bopper and Richie Valens, and that was that for Buddy Holly and the Crickets, but the Crickets continued afterward. But before all that, and while Buddy Holly was still alive, Sonny Curtis wrote I Fought the Law and the Crickets without Buddy Holly recorded the song and released it as a single in the UK where it failed the chart. The group continued working on tracks and in December of 1960 released In Style with the Crickets, which included that track and some other songs which did chart in the UK, but it really didn't do much on this side of the pond. Sinks left the band later that year, and then David Box took over on lead vocals for a short time, while Sonny Curtis was serving in the military. But since that time, with a couple of years break in the late 1980s, Curtis has been the lead guitarist and vocalist for the Crickets, 
and as of this recording is the last surviving member from the Buddy Holly era since Jerry Allison's death in 2022. And here's where we loop back to the beginning of all this. In addition to being the writer for I Fought the Law, Sonny Curtis is also known as the composer and singer of the theme song for the Mary Tyler Moore Show, which ran from 1970 through 1977. And before I move on, I should note for the record that Curtis did not write It Doesn't Matter Anymore. That was actually written by Paul Anka, but his royalties for the song go straight to Holly's widow, who again, as I record this, is still living in Texas at the age of 90. Okay, so back to 1960. Well, 1961. Well, 1958. Let me know. It was in 1958 that Sonny Curtis wrote I Fought the Law, and Curtis has said in a few different interviews that he was sitting in his living room one hot Texas afternoon, and the song just came to him. Now, there are some stories that it was first recorded by someone named Ronnie Self. Now, Self has kind of faded into the background of music history as a performer, but... He wrote several hits for Brenda Lee, but I couldn't find anything solid that said that Self recorded the song, despite the fact that he did work with Sonny Curtis a little bit around that time. So as far as I can tell, the first recording of the song was by a post-Buddy Holly version of The Crickets in 1959, and it appeared on the 1960 album In Style with The Crickets. The band recorded it at Bell Sound Studios in New York, and while there might be a vocal overdub in it, it's otherwise a live track of the entire band playing at once. Sometime later, it appeared as the B-side of their single A Sweet Love, which did not get a lot of action. In 1962, a band out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin called Paul Stefan and the Royal Lancers covered the song. It got some local airplay and record sales, but it also didn't make it onto the national charts. It was considered a bubbling underhit. Now, one of the things I like about both the Crickets version and the Royal Lancers version is the rather laconic way they approach it. It's not the anarchistic anthem that it became later. Not, not just yet, anyway. And Paul Stefan seems like he's going for a little bit of an Elvis vibe here. Sammy Masters came up with this version in 1964, and again, it's pretty laid back, but unfortunately for Sammy, another musician recorded it around the same time. Now, 
That would be someone named Bobby Fuller out of the El Paso area in the far western part of Texas. He and his band recorded the song, and it became a regional hit, but Fuller had his eyes on a bigger prize. So in western Texas, the song was released on the Exeter label. Fuller made the leap over to the Mustang label, changed the band's name to the Bobby Fuller 4, and the record was re-released. This time, the song finally cracked the charts, peaking at number 9 on the Billboard Hot 100, and it was also top 20 in Canada and made it to number 33 in the UK. But here's where stuff gets weird and a little bit dark. Shortly after the song became a national hit, Bobby Fuller was found dead in the front seat of his mother's car outside his apartment. A plastic hose in his hands led to a can of gasoline. According to the autopsy report, Fuller's face, chest, and side were covered in what they're called petechial hemorrhages. They were probably caused by gasoline vapors and the summer heat. He found no bruises, no broken bones, no cuts, no evidence of beating. And here's the truly weird part. On the autopsy form, the boxes for both accident and suicide were checked, but next to the boxes were question marks. Despite the official cause of death being listed as suicide, some commentators believe that Fuller was murdered. The theories ran far and wide, even into the 1980s, and at some point, Fuller's death was changed from a suicide to an accident. And that might have been the end of the story, except in 1979, The Clash was working on their second album when Joe Strummer and Mick Jones heard the Bobby Fuller version playing on a jukebox at Automat Studios. Their version was first released on their EP, The Cost of Living, in May of 1979 in the UK, and uh, later that year it was part of the American debut album called The Clash. This version was the first Clash recording to get significant airplay in the United States, and might be the one that led other bands to get it to sound a little bit more aggressive and even nihilistic. Mick Jones told Uncut Magazine that some of the percussion on the record was done by banging on the pipes that supplied a urinal at the studio. They would take hammers and bang on the pipes to make it sound a little bit like a chain gang at work. You can hear it throughout, but it's a little bit more prominent near the end. But the best part of this recording was also recorded in the bathroom. And again, it's at the very end. And I really had to boost the sound so you can hear it. That's the sound of the same urinal that they were banging on being flushed. So, despite the song being popular in some corners of the U.S., it didn't make the Billboard chart, but it did go into the top 30 in the U.K. and Ireland, and it was a number one, um, sorry, number 17 song in New Zealand. And 
yes, of course, there are other covers, and they're a little bit grittier and punkier than Bobby Fuller, which suggests that The Clash really laid down the template for the song for the future. But I should note that uh, Sonny Curtis did envision it originally as a country song, and that's how Hank Williams Jr. recorded it in 1978. It was a moderate hit for him, and his first in about four years. And I suppose it's worth mentioning that the song inspired John Mellencamp to write and record The Authority Song, which he has framed as a modern-day version of I Fought the Law. You can skip the video, though. Mellencamp hated making videos, and it's pretty clear so did the guy directing it. It really shows. So all of this leads me to wonder whether Sonny Curtis was ever an outlaw himself. Well, apparently not. He does recall a time when the crickets were playing a lot of small gigs and the kids who came were paying one or two dollars to get in and they would get paid in cash. One time they were in a diner and a waitress saw them open up a case with about three thousand dollars in it. So she called the cops and it wasn't long before they were pulled over and had to explain who they were. That's about as close a brush with the law as he ever had. And now it's time to answer today's trivia question back on page two. I asked you about the songs that both featured the musical instrument, the recorder, and were number one records on the Billboard chart. And I gave you the head start of a couple of episodes ago with Windy by The Association. Now, if you guessed Stairway to Heaven, well, you'd be right in that it had a recorder. But remember also that it wasn't released as a single in the U.S. despite requests from the label. So it did not chart on the Billboard chart. I will grant you, however, that in the digital age, it did make it to number 30 on the Hot Digital Songs chart. Another good but incorrect guess would be I've Seen All Good People by Yes, which was released as a single, but it only peaked at number 40. Windy, as it turns out, was the second recorder song to reach number one. The first one came only a few weeks earlier. It was in the first week of March in 1967 that the Rolling Stones' Ruby Tuesday topped the chart for exactly one week. is the full lid on another edition of How Good It Is. If you're enjoying the show, hey, you made it this far. That's got to mean something. Please take the time to share it with someone. Who knows? Maybe you'll team up with them and find yourselves roaming the West as a pair of outlaws listening to podcasts. No? Okay. Also, if you'd be so kind, perhaps you could even leave a rating or better yet, a review somewhere. And you can now support the show over at patreon.com slash how good it is don't forget if you're a patron you get the newsletter about 48 times a year which is my little thank you for your support and you also get occasional bonus videos if you want to get in touch with the show you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com you can follow the show on the social medias at how good it is pod you can also visit like and follow the show's facebook page at facebook.com slash how how good it is pod and finally, you can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where you might find a few extra bits. Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you next time. How good it is.
Ohio. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.